You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Well, today's sermon is a tweener. In other words, it's a message that lands between two sermon series. We've just finished the Take Me to Your Leader series, exploring the book of Ezekiel, and next week we begin the upcoming series, Good Questions. Now, I've never had the opportunity to preach a tweener sermon before, and usually I've preached within a series, and I've been given a theme and a text with which to work. And so I have to confess that this freedom to pick my own passage was a little intimidating, and it kind of brought out some of the worst in me. Those of you who know me know that I'm a pretty competitive guy. And I was incredibly impressed with the how brilliantly George and Earl led us through the extremely difficult and challenging book of Ezekiel. I mean, how often do you hear a sermon series on the book of Ezekiel? Like never, right? So my first competitive impulse was to select a really difficult passage, something from the minor prophets, like like Nahum or Habakkuk and try to out-obscure these two preaching superstars. Kind of like preaching poker. Okay, George, I call you your Ezekiel and I raise you an Obadiah. Or I thought I'd try to out-create of them and preach from a passage that I'd make up. Like Second Hesitations 3, 12 through 17. But then I came to my senses, and I prayed, which is always a good thing to do. And the conviction given me in prayer was to consider a passage from that old, mundane New Testament. I mean, we've just taken a look of what, at what share hope looks like in an Old Testament text, I thought, well, let's take a look of what, look at what share hope might look like in a New Testament text. And so our text for the journey today is Luke chapter 10, 1 through 9. And in this passage, we see Jesus initiating and defining and giving specific instructions to his disciples as he sends them on the mission to share hope. So let's look at the text together. I'll read it and you can follow along in your own Bible or in the Pew Bible in front of you. You can find the text on page 844 in your Pew Bible, Luke chapter 10. And as we prepare to enter into this text, let's just pause for a moment and pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would lead us into this text and Guide us into the things of this text that you want us to embrace and to uh, learn from you in. And then send us forth from this text into the world. Lord, help us to work this word into our lives and then to work this word out in our lives. Amen. Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 9. After this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them on ahead of him in pairs to every town and place where he himself intended to go. 
He said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go on your way. See, I am sending you out like lambs into the midst of wolves. Carry no purse, no bag, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say peace to this house. And if anyone is there who shares in peace, your peace will rest on that person. But if not, it will return to you. Remain in that same house, eating and drinking whatever they provide, for the laborer deserves to be paid. Do not move about from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and its people welcome you, eat what is set before you. Cure the sick who are there and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. Well, as we begin this passage, we locate this Jesus community on the road heading south from Galilee to Jerusalem. And the encounter that we witness in this passage is fairly early on in this journey and has them traveling through the inhospitable territory of Samaria. And Jesus sends his hand-selected team of 70, two by two, out into the hostile towns and villages of Samaria, to the very places that he himself intends to go. And the fact that he's sending them to the places where he intends to go suggests that he has a plan. His mission in this territory is mapped. Jesus has a strategy, and we discover in this passage that the shaping paradigm, the organizing principle of this mission, is framed in the metaphor of the harvest. Right there in verse 2. And in this metaphor, Jesus asserts three realities. He says, first, the harvest is plentiful. There's an extraordinary abundance that's just waiting to be reaped. Second, The harvest is the Lord's. There is something that is supposed to happen here that has kingdom implications. And three, the Lord requires laborers to enter in and work the harvest. So Jesus is calling these 70 to participate with him in the vision that he has for these Samaritan communities. But you know, there's another aspect of this harvest metaphor. And to be completely honest, I have missed it for the longest time in my previous readings of this text. It's right here. Jesus introduces a double entendre. In other words, there's two layers of meaning to this harvest metaphor. The harvest provides both a context for the disciples' ministry and a vision of fulfillment for that ministry. Jesus uses the parable of the harvest to describe both the means and the ends of his mission. And now, in order to see this, we need a little background on Samaritan geography. The landscape of Samaria was comprised of small uh, farms, about six acres on average, small family farms. It was the breadbasket of Palestine. And along the valleys that paralleled the Jordan River and its tributaries, on the, on the plains of those valleys grew wheat and barley. And then up the hillsides from those valleys grew olives and grapes. 
Samaria was agriculturally rich and the harvest was abundant. And Jesus is standing there with his disciples in the midst of some of the most productive and fertile land in the region. And he's talking about the harvest. He's looking over the shoulders of his disciples at this landscape of extraordinary abundance. And he says to them, look, it's harvest time. And the harvest needs workers. See, the harvest was the context in which Jesus sent the 70 into those Samaritan neighborhoods. They're there to join in the harvest. In other words, Jesus sent them as guest workers into the surrounding communities for the purpose of entering into the local mission and rhythm of those host communities. This is a boundary-breaking strategy. Here Jesus proposes entering the hostile territory of the Samaritans by joining with them in the economic life and household rhythms of the Samaritan communities. So file that away for just a moment. And let's take a look at the, the second layer of meaning. Jesus makes it clear that it's not merely a Samaritan har- harvest in which they're sent, but it's the Lord's harvest, a kingdom harvest. There's not only the concrete reality of a physical harvest to participate in, but there are also kingdom implications to be discovered and engaged. Not only are they to enter into the local mission of the community, but they enter in as agents of the Lord's mission. There's a harvest that God wants to reap in these people's lives. There's an abundance of blessing that the Lord desires to unleash in these places. And so we see in this harvest parable, this framing paradigm of Jesus' mission strategy, there are these two mission principles that Jesus sends them with. He sends them out to enter into the concrete reality of their neighbors' lives and join in the cultural rhythms of the neighborhood. And second, he orients them to look for the kingdom places of engagement. And with this as the framing strategy, Jesus gives particular instructions for specific practices that align them with this mission. In other words, he's telling them that these are the things that they must do in order to enter into these communities in the way that he's defined. Now, this was hostile territory. The enmity, the distrust, the mutual denigration between Jew and Samaritan was the stuff of legend. Entering these communities required a a radical reorientation. This was serious boundary-breaking stuff that Jesus was calling them to. And he was directing these Jewish disciples to act in ways that were contrary to their instincts and even their religious convictions. In fact, especially contrary to their religious convictions. And he gives them a list of instructions for entering the Samaritan communities that challenge their religious and cultural practices and biases. And these practices define a particular way of entering into these hostile communities he was sending them to. And these are strange instructions. They were completely contrary to common sense. He says, set out on this journey, but take no baggage, 
No money, no provisions. Go along the road, but don't greet anybody along the way. He says, let the greeting of peace, that Jewish greeting of shalom, peace be upon this house, be your first words to a household that you would otherwise curse. Don't move from place to place seeking the best accommodations, but stay in the house that receives you no matter what the adequacy of hospitality. And finally, regardless of your religiously prescribed dietary rules, eat whatever is set before you. Tough one for me, I got to tell you. You know, you probably lose your breakfast if I shared some of the things that I had to eat in the 46 countries that I've uh, traveled to around the world. But I won't share those uh, with you now. Now, if you didn't understand the mission, these practices would simply make no sense at all. But each of these instructions define practices for entering into a community in a particular way. It's the way of vulnerability. It's the way of humility. It's the way of dependence. It's the way of entering into a community as a guest on the host's terms. And these disciples entered these communities fully reliant on the hospitality of the Samaritan households that would receive them. This posture of dependence, the the pronouncement of peace, this entering community as guest breaks down the natural boundaries of hospitality of hostility i'm sorry the natural breaks down the natural boundaries of hostility and provides a means of truly entering into a neighbor's life and when you consider the cultural boundaries that jesus is crossing here this is truly radical discipleship so let's reflect on this a little bit and let's engage our imagination Here, let's try to imagine what happens here as these disciples enter into these communities in this way. So here these two Jewish men enter into a village, a Samaritan village, identify a home in which they seek hospitality. They knock on the door. The door opens. There's this greeting, shalom, peace be upon this house. Here these two Jews present themselves before the Samaritan household as persons of peace, rather than what the Samaritans would expect as persons of judgment or of curse. And perhaps the greeting of peace is returned, perhaps not. Nevertheless, it is the cultural imperative of the Samaritan household to take these two strangers in. And so they do. And a meal is shared, and conversation happens around the table in this household, and later it's time for bed, a place is prepared, lights out. And the next morning, everybody rises early. It's, it's harvest time, and the guests rise with the household and begin to participate in the work of the harvest. And these disciples work shoulder to shoulder with their host family through the day to bring in the harvest. And over the next few days, as they enter into the life of the family, they begin to understand the local rhythms. They piece together the relationships of the extended family of this household. They learn about the unique qualities of this community. They listen carefully 
to the household's stories. They learn the myths and folktales of this place. They take in the village gossip. They learn who is sick among them and who is struggling emotionally and spiritually. They listen carefully for what the joy of this place is and for what the pain of this place is. And as these disciples enter into the life of the community in this way, they engage the other practices which Jesus had commissioned them with. You see, in this passage, Jesus instructs them to heal the sick and proclaim the kingdom. And they do. They heal the sick and they cast out demons and they tell stories of what it's like, what it's been like for them to be on the journey with Jesus, the kingdom of God. You see, as one truly enters into the life of a neighborhood, as one listens deeply to the heart of a people, as one begins to discern the little kingdoms under which a community lives, one can begin to effectually proclaim and demonstrate the alternative kingdom the more robust kingdom, the more attractive kingdom, the more authentic kingdom, the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the stuff of harvest. This is the stuff of sharing hope. Enter in as guest, join in the rhythms of the local and the ordinary, listen deeply for the joy and the pain of the neighborhood, Participate with the Holy Spirit in delivering the harvest of abundance that God has for His beloved in that place. This is what it means to be His church. It's all right there. Jesus did it then and He's doing it now. Jesus is sending us out into the harvest and it obviously looks different now than it did then, but the organizing principles are the same. The Lord of the harvest is sending us into the cultural streams of our neighborhoods, into the lives of our neighbors to join with them in the rhythms and patterns of life, to listen deeply to their joys and pains and fears, to discern the kingdoms under which they live, and to set before them in word and deed an alternative kingdom, and to invite them to join us in the way of Jesus. Now, for some of you, you're already living this way in your neighborhood or within your network of relationships. You are thoroughly involved in the lives of your neighbors or work colleagues or the local uh, soccer families in your neighborhood. Or if you're a student, you're totally integrated into student life. And you're in tune with the rhythms of that space and you bring your Christ-centered spirituality into those relationships and you share hope naturally. I just heard a story of a small group who had the vision of their Love Your Neighborhood project that had to do with a condominium community that was really struggling. A couple of members of this small group were residents of this condominium community, and this condominium community was experiencing deep brokenness. There was distrust. There was divisiveness. There was angst. There was, there was anger. And 
And this small group had the vision of spiritually engaging that community. And they engaged in prayer around this community. And they encouraged and sent the two members from their neighborhood into this condominium uh, residential community to share hope. And as they prayed, amazing things began to happen. There was healing in this community. There was reversal in this community. In fact, one of the members of the small group got elected onto the board of the condominium community. There was healing, and the kingdom of God came near. So many of you are naturally inclined toward this sort of thing. But But some of you, like me, may not be, and you would find that some of these practices are peculiar and challenging. About three to four years ago, I got in touch with this kind of core dissonance that I was experiencing. There was this sort of holy dissatisfaction. I knew that the, that the church, the church's mission in the world was to join uh, with Jesus in engaging culture and society, but I just didn't see that significant impact happening. And I became discouraged and I, I kind of began to take it, it personally. And I began reflecting on my personal faith and witness in the world of my family and community. And I came to the disappointing conclusion that as a follower of Jesus, I wasn't really engaging the culture around me. I spent an enormous amount of my time on a daily basis in my Christian bubble. My work here at UPC, whether it was here in Seattle or somewhere out in the world, placed me in continuous contact with colleagues and ministry partners that were deeply committed Christians, and I thank God for that, but that was my Christian bubble. And when I wasn't working, I spent time with my family and my Christian friends, my Christian bubble. And unlike most of you, I just didn't get that much time with non-Christians. Kimber and I had a few non-Christian friends, but we didn't get much time with them. And, and the little time that we did spend with them was mostly at a social, kind of superficial level. And so Kimber and I talked about this dissonance that I was feeling, and we decided that we'd like to be intentional about entering into a community where our faith could be challenged, where we could learn and grow from others who believed differently from us, whose worldview was shaped by different influences. As we prayed about it, we realized that God had given us a wonderful network of neighborhood friends who came from different backgrounds and faith perspectives perspectives and influences. And these were people that we loved and that we admired and respected. And to be quite honest, they surpassed me in almost every way, morally, intellectually, personality. I loved these folks and respected them. And we decided that we'd like to go deeper in relationship with them. So we invited them to join us in a monthly dinner group. Pretty simple. And the basic format of this dinner group was that we'd meet regularly and we'd rotate hosting. So we'd meet in each other's homes. And each time we met, the host would have the responsibility of setting forth or defining a big question or topic. And as the conveners, Kimber and I uh, hosted the first 
gathering, and the topic of the meeting, of the gathering, the topic of the dinner, was to discuss our worldview. You know, light dinner conversation. (laughs) And the framing question was this. You know, obviously we had to break it down. So the framing question was this. The the question was, what are the key aspects uh, or elements or values of your worldview and what experiences or events or people in your life have most influenced or shaped that perspective? And I got to say, that first time together was absolutely incredible. That topic was somehow magical. It served as a door into the lives of these beloved friends. It was the portal into which each of us was invited to more deeply share the life. Uh, together, we heard stories of great inspiration, of intense fear and, and pain and alienation, of deep love. And in that evening, we were each guests in the lives of each other. We were given insight into the core values and the, and the cultural and spiritual influences that have shaped each of us. It was an incredible listening event that ushered me into God's abundance in each of their lives in ways that I may never had encountered had we continued in this kind of safe, superficial way of our prior relationship. And certainly not every subsequent gathering had been was intense as that first one, though we continued the the pattern of considering big questions every time, and I was never disappointed in the quality of our conversations. But I think the power of it for me is that this group, reflects some of the key elements of this harvest metaphor of Jesus that he sends the 70 with. I think in this ethos of this group, we've stumbled upon a way of entering into each other's lives that is rich and deep and that gets us to a place of shared life that is far disproportionate to the actual time that we get to spend together. There is this hospitality of spirit where we have this interesting guest-host relationship with each other. We invite one another in and each of us enter into each other's story as a guest. Not presuming, not analyzing, not judging, not seeking to fix. Completely without agenda. And this entering in allows each of us discover the abundance of God's harvest that is present in one another's lives. And for me who seeks to understand the ways of the kingdom, when I'm really paying attention in those spaces, I'm able to give witness to that authentic and alternative reality of the kingdom of God. There was a particularly poignant moment for me recently The big topic of our gathering a couple months ago was the assignment to bring a book that you've read that has had a big influence in your life and share how the story or the characters reflect a core value or a key theme in your life. Isn't that a great assignment? Well, my chosen book was Les Miserables by Victor Hugo. And I have to confess that part of me just wanted to kind of impressed them by the sheer girth of the book to try to pass me off as some sort of literary heavyweight, you know. But, 
But unfortunately, they'd seen me carrying around Tom Clancy and John Grisham books, and they, they, they just wouldn't buy it. But when it came my turn to share, I shared with them that a key theme in my life has been the transforming presence of grace. And that I've experienced that in and through my relationship with Jesus Christ. And I explained how the experience of, of grace in my relationship with Jesus has fundamentally changed the course of my life. And then I described the encounter early on in Les Miserables between Monsignor Bienvenu and the fugitive criminal Jean Valjean. I mean, if you've read the book or seen the musical, you know exactly the scene that I'm talking about. And if you don't, then you must read it or must uh, see it. And as as I concluded the story of that grace-filled encounter and described the closing exchange between the bishop and Jean Valjean, where the bishop says to him, he says, Jean Valjean, you no longer belong to evil, but to good. I have bought your soul and have given it to God. And as I ended that sentence, having read that portion of the book, the room was completely silent. Every person transfixed. And finally, to fill that silence, my friend next to me, and and he's the last person that you'd expect to respond in this way. He says in in a most reverent tone, almost a whisper, he's so moved. He says, that's the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. And we all just sat with that for a moment. And I thought, okay, the kingdom of God has come near. The Lord of the harvest is sending us out into the towns and villages of our life, calling us to enter into the lives of our neighbors, to participate together in the harvest abundance that the Lord is cultivating for the healing and liberation of us all. The harvest is plentiful. Ask the Lord of the harvest to make us his laborers. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of this text where we see your call in our life that you send us forth to join in into the life of our friends and neighbors, into the relational networks that you give us. God, help us to see it. Help us to respond. Help us to be faithful to you in it. So be it, Lord. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.